Alrighty, welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz. Oh, Adam, I just got a notification there that Bono wants to join the call. Should we let him in, or... <laughs> you think? Bono? The Bono? Bono, Bono he seems he's everywhere again. I, he went from being quite absent to... Uh, it's the State of the Union, and he wants in on open sources, and I don't know what to do with that guy. As long as he's not coming preloaded on my iPhone, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> as long as he makes a healthy donation to the station. <laughs> yeah, we'll take That'd it. be nice. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the Patreon is open for Guelph Politico, too, so... Yeah. I hear he's a philanth- philanth- philanthropist. There, I spit it out. I'm going to write to him now. <laughs> That's right. Give us some of that Irish money. Hey, didn't they move to France to avoid paying Irish taxes or something? <laughs> That's Anyway... All true. Uh, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Open Source is the CFU's political and current affairs rock show. Anyway, we're uh, here every <laughs> Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be Alex Neve, who is not local, but he is a newsmaker. He's a commissioner with the Ottawa People's Commission. And he is going to tell us about the community impact of the Freedom Convoy, the first report that the commission just released last month, and what we should expect from their second report that comes out next month. So that's going to be at the bottom half of the hour. Before that, we're going to talk about a few news items from the last week, including balloon politics. America became a country of balloonatics. I borrowed that line. Oh, <laughs> last week because of a Chinese spy balloon that brought the nation to a standstill. It's a story crying out for some classic open sources perspective, and we will give that. But first, uh, healthcare was back in the news because the premiers of the country finally got their sit down with Justin Trudeau. And out of that came what Doug Ford called a down payment, although there's kind of no further payment on the books. But uh, they did announce almost $200 billion in increased federal health spending over the next 10 years. About $46 billion of that is entirely new funding, uh, with $2.6 billion going to topping up the health transfer and there is also $25 billion in funding for increased health services, and that's for bringing in more health workers and uh, fighting the healthcare backlog, as well as helping out with mental health and substance uh, substance use healthcare items. Uh, $25 billion of, of that will go over 10 years to improve equal access to Indigenous communities as well. So a lot of money going out the door, at least it sounds like a lot of money. Uh, technically, I think... Uh, Francois Legault said this, that it brings the current amount of federal spending in healthcare up from 22% to 24%. So, uh, I mean, it's a good news story. You know, more spending in healthcare is uh, nice to hear, but uh, at the same time, it's probably not the the uh, the proverbial windfall that premiers went to Ottawa hoping to get. No, and these, it's, these things are always kind of confusing because it just they throw numbers. It sounds like forty-six billion is new, and the rest is not redistributed. But it's like here's the structure that we want, right? So mm-hmm. it's it's a little confusing. And of course, it wouldn't matter what Trudeau or probably any federal government offered; they would say not enough. And I've I've heard two things on this, but 
trending this afternoon was that there's no strings or penalties attached to there is to some of it like a very small amount of it but they can pretty much do with that money what they want and the question is and one commentator did say this about how some of it will probably not find its way to healthcare, but to other things mm-hmm. kind of like what uh, doug ford did with the um some of that covid money that was provided or the <laughs> even did it with the cap and trade money i'm mm-hmm. looking at you doug uh yeah so they they just sat on it right to make the books look good <laughs> yeah which would be really low but they're not really breaking any rules if they do do that and and, and Sticking with Ford for a second there, was his comment before all of this about the, well, you know, if there's a log jam, you have to build a bypass around the log jam. And I'm thinking, first of all, you didn't write that metaphor yourself. <laughs> Secondly, <laughs> like, isn't isn't the idea to clear the log jam yeah. rather than just build a bypass? Because the bypass is a flood going into the friend's pockets. Mm-hmm. We've talked, I feel like I've made this point a billion times, but Something else I just wanted to add. I don't know if you noticed that. I'm right out of the gate on Monday morning before any of this transpired. 24 hours before, like clockwork. Ipsos poll. Majority of Canadians support private options for health care. Mm. It's something like 60% was the number that they had. It's like, that's a heck of a coincidence. Who commissioned this poll? But again, the same poll said an equal amount of people. 60% said, you know, the feds probably shouldn't give the provinces money without accountability yeah i think that is top of mind of people whether they can get this scan or whatever they need faster i think the impression is that you know that uh, using private channels that could happen not proven Mm -hmm. and again uh, we talked about that last week or two weeks ago whatever it was now but yeah if there's no it's like anything if there's no accountability then it's the, the money can go anywhere and it'll be up to people to try and pick apart where it actually went well, I, I think that's why it was kind of not the huge announcement that that people wanted. I think you know Trudeau's doing his characteristic, you know, uh, I'll, I'll do a, I'll do a little bit because like nobody can can attack doing this little bit um, from either side. I mean, and to prove it, like Pierre Polivier came out to uh, on Wednesday and said, you know, this is a good deal that I would back. So it's like, Whoa, really? so it's, I missed so it's, that. <laughs> it's, it's it's yeah, it's clearly inadequate if Pierre Polivier can get behind it, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the flip side of it is too that people are a bit um nervous that you know provinces that are chummy with private interests and it's not just Doug Ford it's you know Danielle Smith and it's it's BC as well and you know it's it's kind of all across the country that they're, they're looking more and more at private options they're selling them selling the options to people as like well we're it's it's an emergency it's a backlog we're trying to help out and and I think there is a concern that for a lot of Canadians um, who maybe have older relatives who do access private private facilities. I know my mom gets her blood work done at Life Labs. I know a lot of moms, a lot of people's moms get blood work or other medical diagnostic testing at, at these bri- technically private facilities, but are never handed a bill. And I think that's the the real reason is we've been given this kind of taste and um now the private thing doesn't look so scary and of course one of the things doug ford didn't say was well if you give us more money we won't have to lean on these private interests of course um he's still going to proceed with um his his plan to clear the black the backlog using private interests there are kind of no rules stopping them these private interests from upselling people or um doing anything more than the bare minimum that's required 
uh, by the provincial government. And, you know, there are still a lot of unanswered questions. And yeah, the, the delicate thing is, too, you can't go into a situation and say, hey, we want more money. And by the way, we're not even spending all the money we're saying that we're spending. You know, that I can't remember the exact number, the last Auditor General report, but it was like uh, nearly a billion dollars in government spending didn't happen. And just you know went into the went into the proverbial bank. Um, so and a lot of that was healthcare spending. So you know, yeah, it's easy to say we need more money when you're not spending the money you're already promising. Um, the the question is uh, what what accountability is there for the provincial government? Which is also why again why it's so small is because there's no accountability. You're not going to write them a blank check and then not have any accountability. And accountability was the sticking point. The pro- the premiers wanted a blank check. And of course, I would have been wildly irresponsible of Justin Trudeau to do, and probably would have been attacked by many of the same premiers for handing up blank checks. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if it translates into an extra lane on the 413 when that's built, but Oof. maybe they'll Oof. find it as well. It's not far off, though. They, they do things like this, like the selling of the 407, but I don't want to diverge too much. But yeah, well, so this... It's, it's interesting because there was... Yeah, here it is. I got the press release today that the 407 Corporation is sponsoring the 50th Canadian International Auto Show <laughs> this year. I mean, that's, I mean, it, it is, it's privately owned now, and that's ridiculous. Right? Yeah. That's, you know, that's, the, the, these are the things that happen. If they'd have kept it, anyway, again, wildly off, off topic, topic, but, off topic, off but, topic. But, but still on <laughs> reset, but still on topic. Yeah, so they're never going to get to the point where they're going to restore the cuts that the Harper government made mm-hmm. prior to that, the uh, Paul Martin Chan liberals made, they all mm-hmm. made cuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is their people. We have a pretty much a blue wave from coast to coast of premiers and they're going to complain and complain, but you know, some of the deepest cuts came from their friend, Stephen Harper, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and it's, it's just not coming back. And as you said, the other slippery slope thing is the, the when private is as established as this and everybody goes to life life labs right like that's just that that's the default now i'm not telling tales it's like you just get i remember years ago one doctor i went to there was blood work inside there i don't know if they ran it or what but that's that's a lot of years ago and i'm I'm ancient but also speaking of ancient uh, i need a scan and i think it's five months not to Mm. disclose too much but i got this it's like okay it'll be may i'm like oh that's a long time. So you can understand why people, older people, I'm getting there, I guess, uh, you know, may want to consider if they said, okay, well, it's private, but it'll only be a month and it'll cost you X or maybe it'll cost you nothing. You would say, okay, particularly mm-hmm. if you're in danger, right? And this is why there's that whole industry of people going to, in fact, I learned that there's brokers now doing a little bit of homework and I'm not going to go, uh, who will who will arrange your hospital visit in, in uh, Niagara Falls. New York, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then you'll, you'll get it done, and it'll cost you X. I think I saw eight hundred US or a thousand, depending on what you're getting. But at least it would happen, right? So that the the proverbial logjam, mm-hmm. but also in the creation of private, which is coming and is happening already. It's it's as I think the Canadian um, Alter- Policy Alternatives and the ONA have talked about this, saying that you know. It sounds great, but once you establish those clinics and you're drawing people away from the hellscape that is, <laughs> let's be honest, public yeah. health care. Yeah. Uh, it, they'll never look back and it, it'll never change. They'll be like, well, that's probably not so 
we'll just, we'll just leave it. You know, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just leave that. So you still won't use your web card. And then they'll just keep demanding more money. I think tr- 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 uh, Trudeau liberals could have given them everything they wanted and they still would have said it wasn't enough because they're playing politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what's the top story that came out of this? I'm sure you saw it today adam is is the the hand sh- the saddest handshake in the world that <laughs> yeah Can we go from this serious issue of like god healthcare is a disaster and it's like wow look at this handshake it was in the guardian i'm like what is going on this is what comes out of these talks and yeah. it is it was a negotiation it was an offer it wasn't it wasn't like they, there's going to be like bilateral talks between well it's it's 13 right mm-hmm. the three mm-hmm. territories 10 provinces we're going to have to all come up with an independent arrangement with the fed so it isn't just this is how it's going to be there's going to be horse trading or whatever going mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. i'm sure lots of hay will be made out of that as well but yeah so this is this is just the kickoff yeah th- there needs to be sort of like a, a wide a, kind of like a wholesale renegotiation of of the canada health act in terms of like what the responsibilities are and you know it, we can talk about downloading from the federal to the province all all, all day long but there's a, a commensurate downloading from the province to municipalities too. And we see that with, you know, supportive housing, which could arguably be a healthcare issue. We see that with long-term care, which is a healthcare issue. Um, ambulances. And, you know, I, I talked to Nick DeRuza, who's the the head of the OPSU uh, local that manages the paramedic workers. And, you know, they're feeling left out because, you know, they don't have kind of like an organized advocacy effort like the Ontario Nurses Association or the the Ontario Medical Association, which is for doctors. There are just so many little tiny pieces. Um, and we keep looking at this kind of from a from a high level um of like, well, why isn't the feds doing more? And then, you know, at, at the city level we look to the province, why isn't the province doing more? And it just it seems like it just seems like band-aid after band-aid. And of course we can sit here and say like, there does need to be that more of like an organized national effort to like almost tear the system down and rebuild it from scratch to make it sort of modern. But of course that's when politics comes into it and you're never going to get, you know, someone who votes for Daniel Smith to vote together with someone who votes for Justin Trudeau or heaven forbid Jagmeet Singh and Mm -hmm. you know get on the same page about healthcare too so we're kind of damned in this cycle of band-aid after band-aid and you know I'm sure in six months there's going to be more rumbling as well we need another healthcare summit with Justin Trudeau to to fix these things we didn't fix last time and in the meantime uh, you know people who need healthcare desperately are kind of paying the price well, I hadn't forgotten about that deal. On, I guess it was under Martin for his mm. brief tenure as prime minister. About it was about twenty years ago, mm-hmm. and it was very similar to this. It's almost as if they recycled it. It's like it's going to be over ten years. It's going to be this, but there are these conditions. No one met the conditions, and I don't think any of the money. I can't say for certain, but I know it was a failure. Mm-hmm. So, a bit of recycling going on. Let's do the same, a similar thing again, presented as something new. We're going to give you a bit more money, but then we're going to. We want to not disguise it, but we're just, it's, it's not laundering money laundering. I don't want to <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. just rehashing the old idea. Right. But you have to hope with some of the things that they've mentioned, including modernized health system was one of the ones mm. they were providing the, you know, the money needs to go towards this. 
is something that completely needs to happen. As you said, does it do do you tear the whole thing down? It's kind of like how every Windows product is the DOS kernel in it still, right? It's like you just keep adding on and adding on and but yeah, if the, if the blame game gets carried away, then we know that nothing will happen. Mm-hmm. Right? Blame game and throwing money at administrators or consultants, which is what will happen with mm-hmm. a good chunk of this money. Mm-hmm. You almost need to go back in time. I was the uh, read a really good thing once about when uh, the first socialized medicine government of Tommy Douglas had some kind of sit down like, okay, how are we going to do this? And it was very well wartime, just post wartime, very bare bones. And it was very like, okay, this, 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 not this, not that. Um, But they did it. They didn't Mm -hmm. delegate it out to people. Mm -hmm. Doug will be too busy. Oh no, I don't want to, sorry. I'm hammering on Doug a bit. (laughs) You know, he earns it. Or Danielle Smith. I mean, she says ridiculous things about healthcare, right? She says like the smoking one. Mm-hmm. It's not so bad. So you know, listen to her. Or uh, one of the comments was it was Blaine Higgs, Irving's man in uh, the New Brunswick legislature said, "Well, it's better than nothing." So <laughs> I don't know if that's like <laughs> that's the be all and all, right? Well, you know, it's not nothing. Yeah, it's better than nothing. Well, speaking of big nothings, uh, you may have heard the news uh, at the end of last week about uh, the chinese communist party balloon floating over the united states yeah yeah (laughs) um a couple i mean we it's it's our chance to have a little fun with the news this week but a couple of things coming out of the balloon that i balloon affair balloon gate i found interesting (laughs) uh number one all the american right-wing politicians who took pictures of themselves outside with their guns ready to shoot it down whether it was passing <laughs> passing overhead or not because you know your long rifle can reach a target sixty thousand feet in the air um but the other thing <laughs> and maybe this is more of an indictment on the american system than that but uh the the fighter plane that shot the balloon down the f-22 raptor uh that was the first time one of those planes has been used in aerial combat. That's the first time one of those planes has been used to to like shoot down a target in midair. So, you know, there's your military industrial complex. We have this very expensive fighter plane that we've used once in real air combat, and it was to shoot down a balloon. And the, and the missile probably cost like $3 million or something, right? Oh, yeah. But we don't care. It Yeah, there it was, it was peppermint flavored. <laughs> I'm surprised confetti didn't come out. Saying it's a, <laughs> I was, yeah, the, you knew I was gonna love this topic, right? You just like I, I was thinking, you know, it lands in the water and then they pick it up and it has written on it "weather balloon" or something. <laughs> just, 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 <laughs> you, have right. wonder, you have to wonder whether this whole thing isn't just some kind of psyop, right? Mm-hmm. You have to wonder whether the Chinese government isn't just messing with the states, mm-hmm. not even to see not even to spy just to see what their reaction is because the reaction is um well over Ludicrous. the top in some yeah i have to say though i never thought i would marjorie taylor green walking around congress <laughs> with the balloon i actually thought that was really funny i don't like i don't I'm not, i mean i know she's trying to make everybody look bad which is whatever yeah yeah there's anybody looking bad it's probably her but it was just it was it was it was kind of funny uh same with i haven't seen it yet but bowen yang as the as the balloon himself oh yeah from snl yeah. saying oh why'd you shoot me down so yeah there's there's some fun to be had but yeah the the seriousness of it is that um anthony blinken's trip to beijing was canceled mm-hmm. 
So I don't know if it was, uh, you know, China misjudged how this was going to go. They're, now they're insistent. It's a weather balloon, right? They're like, but I don't think anybody believes that. No. I, I, no, no one believes it's a, weather, it's a, it's a civilian. You know, how dare you shoot down this uh, civilian object? And if it's civilian, why, why is the Chinese military commenting on it? And they're so upset about it. If it's a civilian balloon, it's like, and it's straight off course. It's like, okay, well, the U.S. could say, well, we think it's a danger to X, Y, Z and, and shoot it down. So, yeah, there, there's all this. And yeah, and there's that other one floating around the, the South America. I'm yeah, saying yeah. Latin America. It's like somewhere down there. It's like, that's a coincidence that there's two of them loose at the same time. Apparently, these are like floating all over the world at, mm -hmm. at like different points, too. And And I mean, it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that countries spy on each other um the balloon thing is kind of interesting and i i, I from what i gather in terms of spycraft you know it, it if you're taking high-res photos it's probably easier or you get better photos doing it in atmosphere from a balloon as opposed to a satellite although those pictures are probably pretty good too yeah. um but yeah i mean there's all sorts of like sort of weird implications of this number one is that the pentagon pointedly or just accidentally revealed that there are actually balloons floating around um during the trump administration which put a pin in a lot of uh, <laughs> hot air coming from republicans about you know the weak the supposed weaknesses of joe biden on this although he said you know joe biden said you know he went to the military and said well what are my options for shooting this thing down and the military said well let's wait till it's over water because it's 60 feet in the air and it's three buses long and i think the the debris field in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast was something like 20 miles by 20 miles. So that was yeah. probably a good call. The other thing is, and, and Ian Bremer of the Eurasia Group pointed this out, that, you know, they knew about this. The, the Biden administration knew about this, like, Monday, Tuesday. And it became sort of public knowledge Wednesday, Thursday. So, uh, and that's when the Blinken trip was canceled. So, they, you know, they knew about the balloon and Blinken was still going to go anyway until it became public. And the point Bremer was trying to make is like you have this hyper partisan reaction factory guiding national security and diplomatic interests because Blinken was going to meet G in person. And that's kind of a big deal that the secretary of state is going to have a sit down with the, the president of China, regardless of how you feel about Chinese politics. And a lot can be said, of course. But, um, you know, you have this hyper partisan reaction that, you know, because you know, Joe Biden exercised restraint and waiting till it would safely not on fall on anyone's head to, <laughs> to have yeah. the balloon shot down. Um, that this is weakness, or the fact that you would have Blinken meet with G after the the after the balloon affair after around the world in eighty <laughs> days or whatever we're going to call this, <laughs> and, um, is is weakness. And so, I mean, I, that and I, I I like to think Bremer is onto something here. That you know, having this hyper partisanship and having people like congressman comer from kentucky talking about how covid 23 isn't the balloon they're gonna spray us it was a test run and, and saying things like that without complete utter evidence it does make me wonder if it is kind of like a psyop too it's like you know that thing was that thing was pretty noticeable floating up there so <laughs> yeah and poor blanket's gonna miss out on his delicious piece of chocolate cake so yeah i oh guess when <laughs> when g and trump were sitting down there's probably balloons everywhere i was like well we we don't care at this point until they until they do care but yeah, it's it, psyop for sure. I, I, you know, I don't think I'm the first to come up with that, but I, it, it just it has that feel to it because 
the U.S. has spy balloons. They've been looking into spy balloons. I've learned that like all kinds of countries are using this tech because it's cheap or starting to develop it anyway. Yeah. Uh, Well, not starting to because it's it's the oldest surveillance by air (laughs) method that exists, right? You go back far enough in time. There's some fantastic stories came out of this historical, including one that Canada lost a weather balloon once that almost caused an international incident. But because it was Canada, it's like, oh, it's probably okay. Mm-hmm. this balloon's okay he's from canada but yeah there was some concern i guess when they were hauling this thing into the boats and i don't know if it's just to keep people away it's like we don't know if it's got explosives because you know if they wanted to it to self-destruct or try and destroy it before somebody else got hold of it that's entirely possible or batteries like i don't want to be too worried about the batteries on the thing but you have to wonder yeah. with a fall from that height did they actually get the what was it? The double decker bus size thing that was dragging around or just pieces of the balloon. Uh, so as to whether they'll be able to dig a bit deeper and find out what sort of tech they were using. I got the feeling because it was on a budget, maybe it wasn't like the greatest tech, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like what the, what the Ukrainians are doing with the drones. Like it's not, that's not the mo- most savvy thing, but it's becoming part of warfare now. Uh, so who who knows what the Chinese the sorry the civilian airship <laughs> <laughs> had in mind? But yeah, it's it'll also be interesting to see whether I don't think it'll happen again if for a while. Yeah, but that's if it, not- does, if it does, they're really pushing it. Maybe, maybe it'll just float or try to send one because they said it was maneuverable, right? I'm like, I, hmm. I've never heard of that. I guess they could just maybe turn it so it catches certain air currents. It's a bit of a crapshoot as to where these things go, right? But the mm. the winds are fairly, you know, predictable to a degree. Unless they're storms. Up that high. Yeah. Up that high. They know they know where the thing is going to go. So it, it was yeah. definitely it was definitely planned, but yeah, the the thing is too, you know, China was trying to put on a a good face forward, you know, trying to after COVID zero and after a lot of these, you know, international scandals and things, they're trying to, you know, reclaim some level of, uh, I guess, international camaraderie, and and this kind of shoots it in the face. And it, yep. it, I mean, again, we'll, we'll probably never know the truth about this in terms of what was intentional and what 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 wasn't. But hey, what we do know is talking about balloons is a lot of fun um (laughs) (laughs) might be a good time for ctv kitchen to bring back their old hot air balloon oh yeah remember that yeah you could like win a trip on it too or something right like a oh yeah i think i think it's due for a comeback anyway um we're gonna head to ottawa next and talk about the people's business with alex uh neve of the ottawa people's commission you are listening Two open sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And that goes out to all you Gen Xers who survived the Cold War like I did. <laughs> that was <laughs> 99 Red Balloons, the hardcore version by a band called Seven Seconds. 
most Gen Xers out there listening will know who that is. The album was called... What the heck was the album called again? Walk Together, Rock Together. Oh, good message. Walk Together, Rock Together. Walk Together, yeah. We should adopt... Well, I don't know if we should, but I'm going to adopt that as my (laughs) go-to now. (laughs) And get sued by seven seconds. I don't know if they're still together. I have no idea, but... I think they they might appreciate the the um, you know the acknowledgement. Could always just say this is a seven second anyway. Um, the the Freedom Convoy last year lasted a whole lot longer than seven seconds, and there was a lot of impact on the community in uh, the downtown area along the National Capital region. A lot of those people felt well, let's just say abandoned uh, by by city officials, by the Ottawa Police Service. Their voices aren't necessarily being heard in a lot of the aftermath. So things like the public emergency, the, the Emergencies Act Public Commission, things like, uh, I believe there's an Integrity Commissioner report coming to City of Ottawa at some point in the near future. So they did what the people have often done, which is doing it for themselves. And they formed the Ottawa People's Commission, and they heard testimony from area residents, um, both for and against the Freedom Convoy. There were some four voices, and we talked about a lot of that with Alex Neve, who is a University of Ottawa professor. And we discussed the first report from the commission. They have a second report coming and and all the hard work in sort of doing a people's people-based analysis of the effects of the Freedom Convoy. I think this is a pretty interesting discussion. I'm not just saying that because I did the interview, but I think... <laughs> Um, I, I think this is going to be pretty enlightening. Um, and I, the work itself is pretty enlightening too. And I'll tell you where you can find it after we're done, but let's, let's hear from Alex Neve right now. Uh, we talked, uh, yesterday, so let's hit play on that interview starting right now. Okay. Alex Neve, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Great to join you. Um, first, can you talk about, um, just a little bit of the origin story of the People's Commission, you know, perhaps a bit how it got started, how you got involved, and and perhaps why um, you and your colleagues felt that uh, it was necessary, given um, all the, I guess, all the analysis around this was going on. Why, why, why the need for the People's Commission? Uh, well, there's a lot in there. I could, I could take, <laughs> I take the rest of the interview uh, answering all of that, but it's really important because that's the foundational piece. So I'm sure listeners will remember that we had a bit of an incident here in Ottawa back in February of 2022, uh, which was obviously, and I know we'll get into this in a moment, it was it was very harmful and traumatic for, for thousands of people living and working in, in downtown Ottawa. And in the aftermath of that, um, as, as people were continuing to, to debrief and, and even to support each other, because there had been a lot of mobilization and networks coming together in the midst of the convoy uh, that some of which were pre-existing, some of which were new connections for people. And those conversations were going on even after the last trucks had rolled out of town. And it became very clear for people that this wasn't over uh, in a whole Mm. host of ways. Certainly that people were carrying a lot of trauma because of what they had been through. And and there was nowhere to go with that trauma. It wasn't even really being acknowledged or addressed by officials, for instance. And the other was that people felt very dissatisfied with what was on offer in terms of some mechanism for accountability. Mm. Um, And I don't even necessarily mean 
you know, individualized criminal accountability, because of course, yes, uh, criminal trials of, of the likes of Pat King and Tamara Leach were underway. It was really a broader sense of accountability that people hungered for, that you know, they had been so profoundly failed by government and police uh, at precisely the time when they needed assistance um, the most. And what was that all about? So, uh, so then people start paying attention, and this was part of your question, uh, to the processes that are on offer. Uh, as I'm sure listeners know, some of that was legally required because of the use of the Emergencies Act. So mm-hmm. the Emergencies Act requires that a special parliamentary committee be established, and that happened, and it started having hearings and sessions. The Emergencies Act requires uh, that a judicial inquiry be convened to look into whether the use of the act had been justified. Uh, That got underway, uh, presided over by uh, Justice Rouleau. Uh, And then here at municipal level, uh, because everything had been so dysfunctional at municipal level, the City of Ottawa's Auditor General was tasked uh, with doing a review as well. So there was lots on offer, lots of examination. Some of that, especially the Rouleau inquiry, uh, received a considerable amount of media and other public attention. But it also became really evident to people that there was no space for the community perspective, the community experience uh, in any of that. Uh, I mean, no space is maybe an overstatement, but it was a tiny amount of space. Mm. Uh, And that just seemed wrong. How could you in any way truly grapple with the enormity, the consequences of what happened and, and make informed recommendations about what needs to change going forward if you aren't first and foremost hearing from and basing that analysis on the people who lived and breathed it for 24 hours a day, seven days a week throughout that entire time period. And I guess to, to finish off um, the answer to your question, you know, kind of the last piece in the puzzle, therefore, is uh, so people feel a need. Um, people can see that what's on offer doesn't meet that need. And I guess the aha moment is that people didn't just take that away and feel cynical and jaded, but decided to take that into their own hands. Um, if, If we don't like what's on offer, if it doesn't provide what is needed, then let's create it ourselves. And that's what led to the decision to establish the People's Commission very much, I guess, therefore, what I really want to emphasize something that is of the community, from the community. Uh, There's a community-based steering committee that has kind of shaped and and advanced uh, the commission. Um, and, and, And most importantly, is all about hearing from the community. The, the report that came out at the end of January talked a lot about how the community felt abandoned, how they felt failed by the government and police. And essentially what you're talking about is even in this recovery phase, you you still feel abandoned, that you had to take up this work yourself, the work of actually talking about how this affected the community and not just talked about legislative requirements or how there were systemic failures that, you know, the the experiences of people who experienced it 
had to be made central because the people insisted. So it's, it's another government failure in what you're talking about. Absolutely. I, I mean, you're quite right. Abandonment is one of the key themes that we've highlighted in our first report. And, um, and it came through so consistently from everyone we heard from, no matter what their background, their socioeconomic standing, um, where they lived uh, in, in downtown Ottawa, which of the, the several impacted communities they were from, uh, everyone talked about abandonment. Uh, for some people uh, from you know, marginalized communities, for, for instance, abandonment to a certain degree was nothing new. Uh, it was traumatic to be abandoned at such uh, an important time, but in some ways it was same old, same old for some members of some communities. For others, this was an eye-opener. Uh, this was, in many respects, their first experience of that sense of abandonment, of, mm. of feeling like they literally did not matter in the eyes of, of police and government. And, uh, and so, yes, uh, when, when the official review processes come along and still their voices aren't being sought, still uh, no space is being opened up to ensure that the, the community is, is at the centre, that sense of abandonment uh, only grows. And, and, and we certainly heard, therefore, from you know, almost everyone who testified or made written submissions, participated in community meetings, uh, that for them, just the mere fact that the People's Commission was happening, that there, that there was this opportunity to come forward and, and share their story and feel that it was being acknowledged and legitimized, was in itself uh, a huge breakthrough. People just want an outlet. Absolutely. No, if I, I mean, people use terms like cathartic uh, mm. and... You know, and and and, and you know, when something is cathartic, it can often play a key role in in helping with healing. You also heard from people who supported the convoy. I'm curious, um, in terms of, did did you seek that out, or is that just because you had such an open process that you know anyone who who wanted to testify got their chance? So we did make a very deliberate decision. Now, our you know our mandate is the Ottawa's people, Ottawa People's Commission on the convoy occupation. It isn't the People's Commission against the convoy mm -hmm. occupation, um, and we we were very much tasked with digging into understanding what was the impact of the convoy on the community. Now, overwhelmingly, uh, <laughs> uh, what we heard from uh, was a negative experience. Uh, people talked to us about harm and threats and fear and intimidation and disruption and even a sense of terror. However, uh, there were people who came forward from the community, uh, people who live in downtown Ottawa, have lived in downtown Ottawa for years, have raised their families in downtown Ottawa, who wanted to share a very different perspective that for them, the convoy had been a positive and welcoming experience. And uh, overwhelmingly, those people were, I'm sure it won't be a surprise, um, people whom during COVID had made, for whatever reason, their own personal reasons, a choice not to be vaccinated, uh, not to wear masks, and that, of course, had had very real consequences uh, for them during those two plus years. Um, some had lost their jobs. 
Some talked about not being able to send their their children to high school. Uh, many described becoming outcasts uh, with their neighbors, uh, with friends and family, and and used words like you know having become a pariah. Uh, I think we can all understand we may we may or may not have sympathy with why and how they ended up in that situation. They made their own choices, mm-hmm. but I'm sure we could all understand that that was not easy. And so they talk about the fact that when the convoy arrived, and even before the actual arrival in the days leading up to it, when there was much hype and social media traffic about it being on its way, they felt, and and many even used this language, they felt liberated. Uh, mm. They felt like you know their people were coming <laughs> to town, that they weren't going to be this outcast anymore, that there was going to be a group that was going to welcome them. Mm-hmm. I would say that maybe about 10% of the input we had in the commission um, mm. reflected that perspective. Mm-hmm. And um, we made it very clear to people that, we wanted to hear that. We weren't going to open up a space to have debates about vaccine science or the legitimacy or not of various public health uh, mandates and protocols. Right. But if people did actually want to talk about their community level experience of the impact of the convoy and do so from a positive perspective, then we were open to hearing that. I'm curious, and maybe this was beyond the, the scope of your commission, but you know, when you have that 10%, and I think a lot of people would hear that number, and, and it's not large in terms of percentages, but it's, I think a lot of people probably see that as pretty large. In terms of the 90%, though, who are talking about the harms, the noise, the pollution, the harassment, and the things, how do you reconcile then and again, I, I, this may be beyond your scope, but you know, how do you reconcile the ten percent who say, "No, this was great. I had a great time. I felt I felt liberated," as as you you said that they said to the ninety who are like, "Oh my God, I never wanted this to do this again. I was I was abandoned. I felt violated. You know, all that stuff." So, I, I mean, it'll be an interesting question: to what degree we do or do not try to reconcile that ourselves uh, in our final report. We did, uh, what I would note, we often put exactly that question, though, to the 10% during their testimony, you know, something along the lines of, you know, thank you very much for sharing your experience. We've, we've, we've noted your views. Um, be interested to get your reaction to the following. Uh, we've heard from many people who actually described uh, this experience as having been, you know, Torment, intolerable, violent, harmful, frightening. Um, what's your take on that? Um, how how is it possible that there could have been these these two completely different realities? Mm-hmm. And um, for the most part, there was kind of an un- unwillingness or inability to mm-hmm. go there. Um, there was a tendency to be dismissive of it. That. Um, this is the nation's capital, after all. Uh, people who live in central Ottawa just have to get used to the fact that protests happen and that they're going to be disruptive, um, which wasn't at all fair to... I mean, we heard repeatedly from the people of downtown Ottawa, bring on the protests. We love protests. I mean, the, the, the downtown Ottawa community tends to be 
a quite activist and politically engaged community. Uh, they're often the ones organizing uh, or leading or certainly participating in demonstrations. And if you're not, you're, you, you get used to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And they, um, they pretty quickly, you know, within hours of, of this thing showing up, knew this was something completely different, which is one of the reasons why we deliberately in our report made a finding uh, that we do agree that this was something different and more than protest. Uh, mm-hmm. And we do land on the word occupation as, as being. Now, that's not to suggest that there weren't protests happening uh, as part of the occupation. Clearly they were, but there was something beyond protest uh, that was at play here as well. And, and that's the part of this that I just don't think can be reconciled uh, because um, those harms, that violence um, is, is not protected as a form of, of peaceful protest because it wasn't peaceful protest. And, um, and it is absolutely legitimate for people who felt bolstered and lifted up by the presence of the convoy to, uh, they should be able to participate in and count on the protest side of things, absolutely. And, you know, bring it on in the future. But there's no way that you can reconcile the other aspects of this. And, um, uh, and, and I think to a certain degree, we had some people who were willing to go there. Although even then, there, there, was, there, was, there was some pushback at the end of, of their intervention, usually along the lines of, yes, okay, I can understand that this was not a very happy experience for some people. But they shouldn't blame us. They mm. should blame the government. Mm. Uh, they should blame the government for putting these masking protocols in place in the first place. They should blame the government because you know Justin Trudeau and Jim Watson wouldn't uh, wouldn't come out and have meetings with uh, the 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 convoy organizers. There was always something at the end of it that let them off the hook right. uh, for any sense of responsibility. Mm-hmm. There was a particular emphasis in the the first report about this being violent, and I, I just kind of want to talk about the the definition of violence as as your as, as your commission understood it. Because I think when people hear violence, I think you know people getting beaten up in the streets or something like that. They don't necessarily think of you know a local Muslim community center being vandalized as violence. Although I think a lot of us would would agree that there is a, a message of violence in there. So in, in terms of that violence, can you talk a bit about how that was defined by your commission? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think you're quite right that the, we do, when we think of the word violent, we, and, and you know, people say, well, where's the blood? Um, mm-hmm. Where's the broken mm-hmm. bones? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think maybe even particularly in this context, because for a lot of people, the January 6th inter- insurrection in, the, right. in the, at U.S. Congress was in people's minds. Um, and that, you know, I mean, everyone agrees that was violent. Uh, so mm-hmm. so where's, where's that kind of activity? Um, and uh, so we were very much listening uh, to what people wanted to share. Were they simply talking about inconvenience and nuisance, uh, which is which is what some of the 
the commentators push back that, you know, this, the, the people of downtown Ottawa just can't put up with a little bit of, of uh, inconvenience. Mm. No, there was, there was violence in, in a whole host of different ways. There were physical acts of violence. We did hear repeatedly from people who were assaulted, for instance, you know, pushed around or shoved, um, even even you know, people in wheelchairs um, being pushed around and shoved by by convoy supporters and participants. We heard a lot of instances of, of physical assaults involving uh, attempts to rip a mask off of people's faces. That was quite commonplace. There was a lot of um, violent words, uh, threats, uh, insults, you know, racist, misogynist, transphobic, homophobic, anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, um, uh, and whether that was verbally or through uh, banners and flags and, and that sort of thing, that was very commonplace. Certainly people experienced, you know, I think the two most significant and well-documented harms associated with the trucks themselves, mm. uh, the torturous levels of blasting of horns, um, and then the, the noxious uh, impact of the diesel fumes. Uh, that's not just a nuisance. Uh, that was violence, uh, especially the horns. I mean, that's been well documented now in court proceedings, etc. The levels, uh, the decibel levels at which that was happening, um, cause physical damage. Uh, uh, you know, that's that's that is violence. It may not have been somebody's fist uh, uh, achieving that, but it, it's it's in that same area. The, the trucks themselves were a, a symbol and manifestation of violence uh, for so many people. They were terrified of these trucks. Were the trucks going to be weaponized? Mm. Um, we've, mm -hmm. you know, we live in a world where that happens. Um, were the trucks going to explode? Uh, people were constantly terrified watching the, the unchecked open fires, which bylaw officers weren't doing anything to, uh, to regulate. Fires in, in oil cans, um, uh, barbecues that were, uh, were sort of being used to cook hamburgers kind of uh, you know, all day uh, uh, throughout the week, surrounded by propane tanks, surrounded by fuel cans, uh, jerry cans for the trucks, um, fireworks uh, going off uh, in this enclosed <gasps> space. There was kind of a terror that people felt. People described what it was like being up in their you know, eighth floor balcony, looking down on that scene, you know, seeing the fire here, the truck parked there, uh, and, uh, and the propane tank being wheeled in and, and having this sense of terror all the time that there was about to be a catastrophic explosion. That's psychological uh, yeah. violence, <laughs> you know? And, and then I think there was just something about, uh, people felt imprisoned. Um, mm. They felt imprisoned sometimes literally because they were, they, they could not, their, their, their driveways or, you know, the parking structure at their apartment building was, was firmly and completely blocked by trucks. Um, uh, so they literally couldn't get out that way. Um, they were so afraid of what was happening on the streets. Would they, you know, if they tried to go down the street to visit their friend or go to the grocery store, would they be accosted by someone trying to rip off their mask? Would they have to go past one of these open fires and the fear that there was going to be an explosion? Um, so there was, there was just an overarching 
atmosphere of menace and terror uh, that kept people, um, uh, and often the most marginalized. If, if you're disabled, if you're elderly, if you're racialized, um, you're even more likely uh, to feel that sense of, of fear and intimidation and not want to go out. If that doesn't all add up yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to violence and, and not at all the celebratory love fest that the convoy participants like to describe this as, then, um, then uh, you know, I, I, we're just not in the same universe. Right, right, right. Well, maybe to wrap up, uh, there, there is another report coming next month. Uh, maybe you can talk a bit about just what we can expect in that one. What's going to be the focus of that report? So this first report was very much, I mean, the title says it all, what we heard. Uh, and we very much want, because these are voices and perspectives that have been given very little space, we wanted the spotlight to be on them. So two thirds of the report really is is excerpts from uh, testimony and submissions we received, and you know, and some analysis and framing that we've added. The second report will very much be where we take that and do the deeper analysis, uh, where we, we we've we've reached high level conclusions that it was an occupation, it was violent, people were abandoned, the community had to mobilize. Uh, this was a human rights failure. Uh, but now we want to go deeper um, with those various findings. In what way was it violent? What types of violence? What, uh, what did the abandonment look like? Who was responsible for the abandonment? So a lot of that analysis, because at the end of the day, most importantly, we need to be formulating recommendations. Recommendations that are very much grounded in what we've heard from the community, uh, but recommendations that will, number one, uh, avoid something like this happening again. Right. But even I think in some respects, more significantly, it's become clear to us that that what this has, has exposed are deeper failings, uh, deeper human rights failings, uh, for instance. It's, it's very clear that uh, at, at no level of government, and you know, certainly very directly at the municipal level, was there any kind of solid human rights framework in place for these communities um, that that would have mitigated against all of these harms. If you had a human rights approach in place for that community, for instance, it would simply not have been an option to decide that for three and a half weeks, you're going to abandon services and programs for disabled people uh, right. living in, in that neighborhood. That's That's just not even possible if you're taking a human rights approach. So there's a there's a deeper uh, need here to to dig into that. You know, why are human rights not in the frame? to start with and what do we need to do to improve that? So a lot of our recommendations will address that as well. Well, Alex, I, I feel like I might need to talk to you again after that report comes out. Uh, there, there's, there's so much to dig into, but for today, Alex, Neve, thank you so much for joining me. God, it was a pleasure, Adam. Thank you. Okay. So once again, that was Alex Neve. Uh, if you're interested in checking out the Ottawa People's Commission, um, and, and they have all the testimony up there. It's on video and you can read it. Uh, the first report is up there too. Website's pretty easy to navigate. Um, if you don't want to Google it, just go to opc-cpo.ca and you will be able to see all the highlights and read the reports and things. And like I said, that next report comes out in about a month. So, um, and then the the Emergencies Act Commission that delivers its report next, not ne not this coming week, the next week. So hmm. lots lots of reading ahead. Um, good thing reading week's coming up, right, Scotty? Oh yeah, can't wait.
<laughs> Every yeah. week is reading week for me. <laughs> That's yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Read anyway, uh we should get back to that reading because that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. You can stay connected to us on our website, opensourcesguelph.com. We're on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. If you'd like to listen to this show again, you can download it from our website every Monday. You can get it at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson or check out my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. And I'm Scotty Hertz on Twitter, Facebook, and Mastodon. And if you're joining us on our usual time on the FM, stay tuned for Turtle Island Underground. And that's one of the many great programs you will hear on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. As for us, we shall return next Thursday at 5 p.m. for another edition of Open Sources. And we will, of course, see you then and there.